Our first lesson today is taken from Psalm 133, and if you are using the Bibles we provide, you will find that on page 519. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of the Lord. Our next lesson is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll find that on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson and text for this morning is from John 17 as we look one more time at Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed this prayer in the upper room with his disciples the night of the institution of the Lord's Supper, the night uh, before he went out to the garden and then was arrested and in the morning crucified. So this is what was most on Jesus' heart. And as we've seen uh, in verses one through five, Jesus first prayed for himself. He prayed, Father, in what's now coming, I ask you to grant me again the glory I had with you before the world began and to glorify yourself through what is about to take place. Then as we saw last week, in verses six through 19, the middle portion of this prayer, Jesus prayed for the disciples there with him in the upper room gathered round the table, those who would soon become 
the apostles sent out in the power of the Spirit to establish the church. But now, a group of frightened but still boasting, uh, self-deceived men who uh, promised Jesus that they'd go with him to the end. Jesus knew that they, in a few more hours, would all betray him and run away. And yet, Jesus, as we saw last week, prayed so beautifully and so powerfully for them as we ought to learn to pray for one another, especially for those whom God has entrusted to us. And now we look this morning uh, as Jesus uh, incredibly, knowing that he's facing the cross, still has most on his mind the mission for which he's come into the world. And so beginning in verse 20, he turns and says, Father, now I'm going to pray for all of those who will believe in me through the testimony of these apostles. In other words, he was praying for you and for me as he went to the cross. John 17, beginning with verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. The Gospel of Christ. This prayer, these these final verses that Jesus prays, this part of the prayer that is for us down through the ages, all of us who would believe through the testimony of the disciples who left that testimony through the written documents of the New Testament and through the church the new covenant community that they established in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So this is the testimony that has come to us. It is for us that Jesus is praying, and his prayer is in two parts. It begins in verse 21. Again, in verse 20, he makes clear whom he's praying for now. I'm praying not for these, but for those who will believe. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus prays, for the days of our lives here and now. He prays for us in our present situation, living, following, serving, worshiping. Then in verse 24, remarkably, he turns and we might say he prays for the day of our death and all that follows. He prays for us into the age to come. And so we're going to look at these two parts of his prayer, and 
let me simply suggest, and I'll try to remember to do it again at the end, if Jesus' own prayers serve as model prayers for us, notice that in this last section, verses 20 through 26, Jesus is both praying for people who have not yet been born, and he's praying for those people after they die. I'm just saying. I was not taught to pray like that. I was taught to pray for those of us here. God will take care of the rest. We don't pray for the dead. But I don't think that we are being wise. I think rather we are missing a tremendous opportunity if we fail when we pray for our families to pray for our families yet unborn, for those yet to come, to pray that there will always be those present in their lives, to pray for them, to represent Christ to them, to speak truth into their lives, to be there for them, and even to pray perhaps for those who've gone ahead of us, that they may be knowing what Jesus prays for us as he prays us beyond death into the life to come. I'm just saying, if Jesus could do it, Maybe it's okay for us to do it as well. First part of the prayer, verses 21 through 23, Jesus really prays two closely related things, the second flowing from the first. And then in between, in verse 22, he gives his own way that he has sought in his life and ministry to make those prayers come true. First thing that he prays, and he repeats it. He prays almost the same prayer in verse 21 and in verse 23. First, he prays, Lord, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. Just as you and I are one, let them be one. Lest we think that when he talked about the unity for which he was praying, that he was using it metaphorically or analogically. He said, I want them to be one just as we are one. And then in verse 23, when he prays it again, he said, may they become perfectly one. As I am in you, you are in me, I am in them. That is the unity that I am praying for all those who will believe in me through their word. And brothers and sisters, if there's anything that is obvious from the state of the church today, it is that Jesus' prayer has not yet been answered. Because we are scattered and divided. That unity of the Godhead was a unity of heart and mind and of affection. Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father. I've come to do his will. I and the Father are one. The love, the community, the respect, the affection is what he was praying that we might have with one another. That people in the midst of a world always at war, people at enmity with one another, people suing each other, divorcing each other, hitting each other, armies marching forth, people blowing themselves up to kill others. 
in such a world as that, he wanted his people to be the new community where the world looked and said what they said of the early church of the first Christians. See how they love one another. There's not a needy one among them. Look at this. We know that very early on, the fractiousness began to come out. We've studied 1 Corinthians together, and boy, the opening chapter, he says, why would some of you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, Peter. He said, why would you identify with us, your teachers? It was early denominational thinking. He said, no, no, don't you know that you are Christ's? That is to be your only identity. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all things are yours, for you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Don't identify yourself with men. But still, the Greco-Roman world looked and saw one church, and it turned things upside down. It's so interesting to read some of the letters written back to Rome by various local Roman officials. They just didn't know what to do with these Christians. They would say, what do we do with these followers of Crestus? We've tried everything. We, they won't offer the incense and say Caesar is Lord. We've put some of them to death, but it doesn't seem to bother them. And the most confusing thing is that Romans take care of Romans. Greeks take care of Greeks. Parthians take care of Parthians. But these Christians are promiscuous in their kindness to everyone. They go take the babies that have been left on the trash heaps and instead of using them as slaves or selling them, they raise them as their own. They, they love everyone. What, what can we do with these people? How do we stop this? It turned the world upside down. That was his intent, that people look at us and begin to see in us the age to come. But within 500 years, as the church began to gather together once persecution lifted, and they said, what does it mean to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? How do we confess God as one and yet see that there are multi-persons within the Godhead? How do we understand that Christ is both truly human but also truly divine? How are we to understand this? As they began to come together and work, there was the first break a group of churches that disagreed with what the church at large said about the will of God, of Jesus, whether he had one will or two wills. They left the Coptic Church of Egypt, the Martoma Church of India, the Syrian Orthodox, what were called not the Eastern Orthodox, but the Oriental Orthodox churches, very small in number, but they left around 500. 500 years later, the great schism around 1,000 between East and West. A variety of reasons, some political, but basically the Bishop of Rome was now flexing his muscles and wanting everyone to obey him, and so he changed the Nicene Creed, which had been written in ecumenical council, and he changed it without calling a council of bishops. And the Eastern Church said, you can't do that, you have to call a council. And he excommunicated them, they excommunicated him, and now the church was split into East and West. And then 500 years later, very interesting, every 500 years, 
500 years later, the Reformation divided the Western Church. And now we stand at the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. We thank God for so many things that the Reformers brought back to the church that they held up and were willing to suffer and die for the truth of the gospel, that you are not made right with God by pilgrimages and purchase of indulgences and things we do, that it is all of grace. It is the grace of God in Christ that they translated the scriptures and preached them in the language of the people so that people could study and know God without having to go through others. The priesthood of all believers the reformation of the church, it was desperately needed. But it was never the intent of the reformers to divide the church into denominations. Their desire, stated desire, was to reform the one church of God, to make it pure, holy, according to the teaching of the Scriptures. And the things that we know as denominations never happened intentionally. Where do Lutherans come from? Well, the Christians who were reformed according to the scriptures in Germany and the Scandinavian countries followed the teachings of Luther. But they were the Church of Germany, the Church of Norway, the Church of Sweden, the Church of Denmark. The, the Reformation in England yielded the Church of England. The Reformation in Scotland yielded the Church of Scotland. The tragedy came in that the new world had been discovered about the same time. And so as Protestants came to this new world, the Germans and the Scots and the English didn't want to come together and be one people of God in America, this new land. The Germans wanted to stay with the Germans. They, they were the Lutherans, the Scots with the Scots. They were the Presbyterians, etc. And we, and that became the norm through the mission movement. We exported, we're going to plant a Presbyterian church in that country. We're going to put a Baptist church across the street. We're going to put, we need a Methodist there. They've got, they're ahead of us. The franchises are getting there ahead of us. It's horrible what's happened. And then, of course, there are always those who say, I know God doesn't want denominations, so we're going to start an independent church. <laughs> Which is like, we're not going to join anybody. An independent church is just a one-church denomination. It doesn't even show the unity of five churches together. And yet this was the cry of Jesus' heart. What are we to do? The problem with the ecumenical movement is, as many have observed, for too long it was in the hands of those who believed the least and who sought the lowest theological denominator. And therefore, it was a sub-Christian thing to which very few Christians, as it developed, could continue to give their labors and their work. And yet the prayer is still there. What are we to do? I think the answer, one beautiful picture of it, comes from a former Presbyterian, the son of of, uh, of uh, John Foster Dulles, Dwight D. Eisenhower's Secretary of State. They were an old Presbyterian family, but 
their brightest son, Avery, became a, um, one became head of the CIA and the other son became a Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest, Avery Dulles, said, ecumenism needs to bring those who believe the most around the table. Sitting there together as brothers and sisters in Christ, not using their differences as weapons to strike each other, but using the uniqueness of each part of the church as a gift to offer to the other. Very recently, I guess in celebration of the Reformation, a former PCA pastor, a brilliant scholar and writer, uh, Peter Lightheart, if you read First Things Journal, you'll know his writings, brilliant guy, has written a little book for the Reformation called The End of Protestantism, Pursuing Unity in a Fragmented Church. And his recommendation is not the folly of saying we all need to be one organizationally again. That's, that's over. It'll take a work of the Holy Spirit. But he's calling us to take Jesus' prayer seriously and to start treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Start accepting, start learning from each other. I'll just give you a taste of it. You may want to get this book. It's excellent. Beyond the perennial vocation to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the church today has a particular need to seek unity. The church can face the challenges of this new century only as a united church. He's not talking institutionally or organizationally, by the way. Nothing has so weakened our witness as our tragic divisions. Nothing has made the gospel so implausible, if not preposterous. Division has deprived us of the weapons we need for the spiritual battles that are on the horizon. We don't pursue unity for pragmatic reasons so that we can win the culture wars. The gospel demands that we live at peace with our brothers and sisters. And then he ends this little part by saying, when we lose sight of the unity of the church, we make shipwreck of the gospel. Because we must be passionate for the truth of the gospel, for that reason, we must be passionate also for the unity of the church. Why? Because Jesus prayed, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. So may we be in them. So may they be united. May they become perfectly one. That should be a deep prayer of every Christian and every opportunity we have to display that in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. Not to say, well, he's a Catholic or he's Orthodox or, well, you know, he's Baptist. He's a good guy, but, you know to accept one another as brothers and sisters, honor one another, show the unity, the love that Jesus was praying for so that that is what we're famous for. And we acknowledge that these are just, you know, denominations. They're just historical realities. This is how it arose with ethnic groups coming in, churches. I mean, as the old joke says, everybody's got to be someplace. This is where we are. But this isn't what it's about. I'm not a Presbyterian. I hope that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. My identity is not in John Knox or things that happened in Scotland, but in what Christ did for me and what he's doing. 
That's what Jesus was praying for, and every Christian should seek to identify in that way. And the reason, he says, in both verse 21 and verse 23, is so that the world will believe that you sent me. In other words, as Peter Lightheart said, if we are shattered, it makes mockery of the gospel. Why would people want the healing that a bunch of people fighting each other all the time bring? The world needs to be able to look at the church and say, look, people really are changed. That guy used to sue everybody. Now he doesn't. Now he's working for win-win. How can I help you? He's even willing maybe to, you know, it changes everything. It changes marriages. It changes friendships. It changes relationships. When the gospel of Christ gets a hold of you, what people see in a divided world is the beginning of healing, people coming back together. And you know what? Everybody wants that deep in their gut. They want that. They want wars to end and people to stop slaughtering one another. Jesus said, you're to show them that. And if you do, and to the degree that you do, the world will have reason to believe Then Jesus, in verse 24, prays for our future. Oh, I can't miss this. He says in verse 22, between 21 and 23, he says, this is how I've made all this possible. I've given them the glory that you gave me. I've given them the glory. Now, if you were with us for this whole study, or if you know this prayer pretty well, those of you in BSF, I understand, have been studying it at the same time, so... You are well up on this. The theme of glory runs its way all the way through this prayer. He prayed in the beginning, Father, glorify the Son with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Then he prayed, they bring me glory as he prayed for his church. I want to glorify you, and they have brought me glory. And I've revealed your glory to them, and they've received it. Now, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me. That's why I can pray with confidence that they can be one as we are one. What does he mean by that? Again, what is glory? Glory in its, in the Hebrew word kavod is this weightiness, substantial gravitas, reality. It's the opposite of a vapor. When the author of Ecclesiastes says vanity of vanity, all is vanity, the word Vanity is literally vapor. It's a vapor. It just, the sun comes up, it poof, it's gone. The psalmist in Psalm 1 says, the the blessed person is the one who's like a tree, substantial, real, roots down by the river, bearing much fruit in season. But the wicked, he says they're like chaff that the wind drives away, weightless. Psalm 49, the psalmist says, man in his pomp, in his pride, in his arrogance, is like the beasts that perish. Just weightless, as opposed to glorious. Glory is weightiness, and in God's holiness, it shines forth in a blaze of glory that can't even be looked at. And so he says, I've given that to them. 
just as I came, Father, to show who you are, to reveal your glory, I now am going to give them my own spirit. And they, as they live as the body of Christ, are now to reveal your glory to the world. They're to show the world who you are. I've given them the glory that you gave me. And if we just begin to understand that, to taste it, to realize how seriously he takes us, how seriously he wants us to take one another, joyfully serious, but on mission together, empowered by him to accomplish the mission. Nothing can stand against the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it when God's people, filled with his spirit, are on his mission together. How different this is from somebody coming and saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you pray a prayer for forgiveness. Just pray this prayer with me. Now you're a Christian. That's it, baby. You know, there's more if you want, but this is the heart of it. Just sit in these texts and realize what God has given to his people. I've given not just forgiveness, the glory that you gave me, Father, I have given to them. That's how he wants us to live, out of the power of his Spirit in community with one another. And then he turns and prays for what happens after we die. And he prays, Father, I want them to be with me where I am. There is this longing that at last we be together. He knew that these guys, before morning, they're all still bragging, I'll go with you to the end, I won't ever fail you. He knows that before morning, they're all going to run away. Judas has already gone out back in chapter 13. He already left to betray him. But the rest will all run away, except perhaps John, who seems to have been there at the cross with the women. And yet Jesus says, I want them with me. I want them with me in glory. Do we pray for each other like that? Do we long like that, even for people who may have hurt us, wounded us deeply, refuse reconciliation with us? Can we pray not, okay, Father, I turn him over to you. I hope, I hope he learns. Instead, we pray, Lord, please show mercy, show grace. I want him. I want her. I want this rebellious child. I want that parent who wounded me. I want this spouse who left me and betrayed me. I want them with me. When at last you come and wipe away our tears and make all things new. That's how Jesus was praying for us. Those of you who've been here for many years, uh, particularly those longer than I, uh, may remember Matt Prince who was for many, many years here a very popular Sunday school teacher and evangelist here in the community. And uh, he died not long after I came here, but I knew him long enough to know that he was always sharing his faith with anybody he could get to sit down with him. And his line was, I don't want to go to heaven without you. I don't want to go to heaven without you. That was the plea of his heart. I have a kind of a sick sense of humor, and so I did think it, I always think it's quite wonderful when the most solemn moments of, of life have something go horribly awry. 
And uh, I did think it was just wonderful and that Matt would have laughed his head off at the fact that at his funeral, on the back of the bulletin, they wanted that saying of his, but they misprinted it. So that at the back of his funeral bulletin, it said, I don't want to go to heaven with you. But everybody, everybody who was there knew him and knew that was not the sentiment. It was just, it was a good line. Do we pray that way? Do we long? Is it an expression of a longing? And then he says something that in the light of what's gone before might seem really perplexing. He has said from the beginning, Father, give me again the glory that I had with you. But then he says, I've already revealed your glory to them. I've already given your glory to them. And now he says, I I pray that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. Wait a minute. He's just said that he's given them his glory, that he's revealed your glory to them. What's the deal now that they may be with me to see my glory? I think this is what he means. In the days of his flesh, His glory was, in one sense, veiled, veiled in human flesh. They ate with him, they laughed with him, they spent time with him. And yet when the three who were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him, and for a moment the veil of flesh fell away, and they saw the glory that was his by right, they were terrified. They fell on their faces as though they were dead. John, who may have been the disciple closest to him, seemed to have been like a little brother. In in the Eastern culture in those days, they didn't sit at chairs to eat, uh, as in the paintings from the Renaissance. They rather reclined at table. They were sort of like chaises, and they'd lie there and rest on an elbow and eat. And John seems to have had the position next to Jesus, because Peter said, you know, ask him uh, this and ask him that, and John would kind of lean back and, by the way, whisper to him. And yet John, who had that kind of intimacy with Jesus, when on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos he received the revelation and saw Jesus in his blazing glory, John fell on his face, terrified. When we reveal God's glory to people, They begin to know who he is. Hopefully they're drawn. But it's still a veiled glory. But in that day, he wants us to be with him. And finally, he wants to throw off, as it were, all the veils. Paul says that even now, we with unveiled faces are gazing at him. And yet, in a sense, we haven't yet really seen him as we will. He's saying, I want them with me. I want them at last to really know who I am. And to that end, he says in the final verse, I will go on revealing to them down through the years. He's talking about us now. Down through the years, knowing our failures, knowing how shattered his church would be, knowing how broken we would be. He says, I want to be with them. I want them to see the fullness of my glory. And to that end, I will continue revealing you to them, making you known to them in love.
we never have reached the end of the knowledge of God. It is, as someone wrote of the Scriptures, a pond in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. It's always deeper. It's always sliding away and going deeper. It's like swimming and all of a sudden realizing you're at the continental shelf and the terror of realizing there's miles of water under me. You know, it just keeps going. You draw back. The knowledge of God. It's that way with people, isn't it? In a, in a marriage, in, in a healthy marriage, you think you really know each other. That's why you get married. A year later, you realize how little you knew each other, which is why often the thing that you thought most drew you together becomes the biggest source of irritation. You're suddenly really getting to know each other here. I remember about a year after our marriage, we were, after we got married, when, when we were dating, Marianne thought I was the funniest person in the world. She'd introduced me to people. He said, oh, say something funny. You know, I'm kind of like... <laughs> and then after about a year of marriage, we had a group of friends in for dinner up in Boston, and we're sitting around the table, and of course, big mouth here is telling stories, and everybody's laughing. And I look down and see Marianne kind of standing up and starting to clear stuff, and one of the people sitting next to her said, just wait a minute, he said, you know, and she was like, <laughs> I thought, honeymoon is over. John is no longer the funniest person in the world. But you know, we stuck together through the hard times, the difficult times, the disappointments, the things that could have pulled us apart. Forty-five years later, she thinks I'm funny again. <laughs> but it's so much deeper, you see. Now we know each other and can be amused by and even sort of delighted in the things that once were such enormous irritants. And yet in another sense, Bruce Springsteen was right in Secret Garden. You go a million miles and you realize there's always so much more to a person. That's true of everyone we meet. Every person, as C.S. Lewis's quote from last week reminds us, is this person in God's image after his likeness whom if we saw that person now, we would either see as an immortal terror or as a god whom we'd be tempted to worship. Those are the people we marry, we work with. That's the person you see when you look in the mirror. For those of us who are getting old, um, it's tempting sometimes to think, the glory days are behind. Another Bruce, all full Bruce Springsteen today. Remember his song, those of you if you're of a certain age, glory days? Yeah, it's, they look back. They're remembering the high school days when, you know, they were great. They were something, glory days. Boy, they pass you by, glory days, in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. No, no. Glory days for you and me in Christ are all in the future. The best is yet to come. The new heavens, the new earth. This is the ante room when the doors are thrown open 
and at last everything that we've loved and longed for in its brokenness we will see and taste and experience and embrace in its fullness. Jesus says, I want them with me. I want them to see it. Abba, Father, I want them to see our home. I want them to know us as we are. That's how he prayed for you as he was going to the cross. It's how he wants us to pray for one another.